Welcome to the Capital Mosaic Podcast. You're joining us for the story series. This week we look at the opening act of the story. Enjoy. Greetings everyone. Welcome to the Mosaic Podcast. Uh, This is Justin here uh, taking you into the second uh, part of our series looking at the Bible as a story. We've called this the story series and the journey that we're going after at the moment is how to hear the scriptures as a story. Not only just how to hear the, the grand story of scripture, but what that means for how we live out our part of that story. And Chris Marshall opened us uh, last time with a very inspiring message that, that we must, one, learn the story so that we can be consistent as we act out of our lives today, uh, consistent with the grand narrative, but also to be able to innovate inside of that narrative as we must improvise now in this current act. And we're following a six-act structure for the story of Scripture, uh, and today we're, we're going to focus on the opening act. Now, we're taking our cues from a book called The Drama of Scripture. Uh, it's a text, textbook for first-year students at university. And essentially, the, the authors of that book have proposed, based on N.T. Wright's model, uh, that the opening act of Scripture is that of creation. Uh, they've titled the chapter, God Establishes His Kingdom. And today, I want to take a look at that part of the story, primarily just focusing on the character of God and what we can learn about God. Now, before we jump in, I I feel the need to do two things. One is to say this is a student talking to other students. I'm by no means an expert. My main hope is that you get into the text yourself and take a look at the accounts of creation, uh, the two accounts in Genesis, freshly. Um, But the second is, is that today, um, I think we need to actually spend a bit of time talking about even how to approach this text um, before we can even really comment on what I think the text is saying, mainly because the text like this in Genesis has become so controversial and creationist versus evolution debates and, and all sorts of other um, discussions that have come up uh, that, that we, we kind of almost don't want to go there because it feels loaded or uh, too too much of a hot topic issue. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time just right up front trying to lay some groundwork of how we can listen to this opening act, the act of God creating afresh with fresh ears and hopes that it might speak to us today and we can learn about this overarching story. And so how can we can we listen to this as story? And, and when I talk about story, I guess I'm I'm talking about when we engage in, in, in the art of listening to a narrative as opposed to listening to like a journalistic report of events or like even historic eyewitnesses. We might call those things story. Uh, I think today what I want to propose is that I'm listening to a narrative almost as if we would watch a show or watch uh, a film. We're watching a uh, film. Is, is what does the character want? Uh, I was really inspired by it. Donna Miller wrote a book a few years back called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, and he was talking about the process of learning to write a movie, and he was quoting uh, a screenwriting uh, coach or expert uh, who said that uh, in general principle for storytelling and story writing uh, when it comes to film is that it must have a character who wants something 
and who overcomes conflict to get it. I think we kind of instinctively, we we know this uh, at, at a kind of base level, that it is our desire that shapes the stories. That the desire of the character is the driving force behind the story. As a character hits conflict uh, and it has to engage with conflict, it is only that strong desire that then engages them to overcome it. And if it, we're talking about a strong desire here, we're not talking about like, I want a cheeseburger type of desire. I mean, I guess there, there could be a story if you so profoundly want a cheeseburger that you're willing to overcome some sort of, you know, debacle situation to get it. But in general, we're talking about that desire that gets you out of bed, that will get you uh, over obstacles, that's willing for you to, to sacrifice and cost. That's generally the stories that people tell. And it, the opening scenes of, of films are often trying to quickly establish for um, those watching um, what those characters want. So, you know, Star Wars episode, episode 7 just recently came out. And so as part of this, we did a massive rewatch of Star Wars. And I have to say, when I say massive, we did skip episode 1, which I recommend for re- other reasons, just primarily Jar Jar. Uh, but one of the big things that... Uh, I kept doing as I was watching it is just kept asking this question because people said Star Wars is a great example of this and it's true in, in A New Hope the the first of you know the first film that came out um, back in the 70s um, has this this opening scene where you quickly can identify the, the desires of the characters Vader wants to find the the plans to the stolen plans of the Death Star um, Princess Leia wants to hide them and obviously you know take down the Empire you can pick that up pretty quickly and Luke I mean, the first thing we learn is that he really just wants to go to Tashi to get some power converters in this extremely whiny voice. But what we learn, you know, quite quickly is he wants to become a Jedi Knight like his father. Now, he didn't really know what that would mean uh, until episode 5, spoiler alert. But obviously, th- that desire shapes Luke's story and shapes Leia's story and ultimately will shape Vader's story uh, as Vader continues to, to fight. And often the, their desires will unfold. But the primary thing is this. This is a long-winded answer. When we go to Genesis 1, we go to the opening act of Scripture, and we want to hear it as a story. We're primarily concerned then with the intent of the character that we, we see. And in this case, that character is God. What does God want should be one of our primary questions. What is God working for? What is God desire? What is God's purpose or goal or, or dream or aspiration? What is it that's going to be the driving force for this character for God? And so that's the first thing I think as we approach this text that we uh, need to have ears for. And the second, so we need to listen for desire. And the next is I think we need to listen as exiles. The scholars that uh, I read in preparation for the talk, drove this point home, and I found it quite helpful, was, was that the, these creation accounts that we have, um, at least the first one, was, was likely to be written down during the time when the people of, of Israel were in exile in Babylon. And it changes things, right? Because we, we know that this is, this is much later on than whenever you believe the, the universe came into existence. Uh, it was a long time before um, 6th century BC when you get uh, Israel in the time of exile in Babylon. And it changes the ears we have. Now, just a, a quick aside. One of the th- I think one of the core questions then we have to ask is how do exiles hear? What are they listening for? What are some of the things that they'd be going through their head? And uh, I'm no expert in, in, in the ancient um, setting of Babylon and how that was impacting Israel, but I guess my general way of relating is that sense of abandonment. 
uh, I took a painting class with my wife when we first moved to New Zealand, and I've never been a big fan of painting. I, I found it very difficult medium to work for, mainly because when you make a mistake, I don't really know how to recover with grace with paint. I feel very trapped in the in the the texture of the canvas and and the way that the paint interacts with it. Uh, I find that I, I feel very challenged to actually kind of undo or um, take it a different direction once the paint's kind of gone a certain way. And we were being taught at, at this, uh, this actually at Massey, um, and, and the woman who was teaching the course was real good, and she was real inspiring and real encouraging about talking to us about how we can work with paint and how we never, you know, it's it's a very forgiving meeting. I mean, she was, she was giving us that kind of uh, inspirational set motivation keep going kind of talk as we're painting and we're doing these still lives and she walks over to where my my wife and I were working she's just kind of giving us suggestions after this kind of uh, inspiring kind of message and then she looks at my wife's painting and says you know but sometimes even even though paint's forgiving sometimes we just need to, to throw away the canvas and start again and I can still kind of, we just laugh. We had a pretty hard laugh after that, our whole table as our teacher walked away. But it, to me, I think at the heart of, of an exile is that fear of abandonment. Like, did God take a look at this project, at this at this this creation story, uh, this created world, and, and kind of say, you know, I th- it started nice, but it's really gone south, and I don't really think there's much I can do to save this. Uh, it's pretty ugly now i'm just gonna abandon the project and go it, it, it essentially uh, has god abandoned us has god are we neglected i mean one of the things that's challenging for us now is, is you know when we talk about the impact of an exile is that when you were a nation with with a, with a religious kind of association right there was a faith of your nation when your nation's defeated it kind of calls into question the validity of your god uh god or gods because it, it, what good is your god if if you end up in exile, defeated. And so there's this kind of implied uh, thing that happens when you're defeated, your worldview is essentially defeated. And so as an exile, you're, you're asking the question, you know, where is God uh, and who is this God? Is this God still trustworthy? Uh, and so I think this is extremely relevant for the church today, especially here in New Zealand, as we know we uh, feel the impacts of a post-Christian culture as, as people look down on the faith as an archaic, just uh, something from another time that has been found wanting and is only believed by us crazy, insecure people who choose to believe it. I mean, the exiles would be would probably be experiencing very similar, if not even further heightened uh, sense of abandonment and wrestling with that. So we listen for desire. We listen as exiles. We respect the fact that this text was written down for a certain time and place. And I think it's helpful if we, we respect that. Um, I guess it's safe to say then that I am implying that it may not have the intent uh, that you want it to. It's not. It wasn't trying to answer modern questions. And I sometimes wonder that if we actually accept that this text had a role to play in, in, the, in encouraging the people of Israel to survive, we might actually stop and consider if, if God providing them with, say, you know, the secrets of, of the Big Bang or whatever uh, belief you have in terms of how the creation uh, actually happened, um, giving that to people in exile, what good it would have done them. You know, I think we, we, we get frustrated because we want God to have spoken to them to answer our questions now, and they can just somehow carry this timeless secret throughout history, wondering if they would have even survived if, if all they received was a sort of blueprint detailed list of how creation came into be. 
So we listen for desire. We listen as exiles. And I would suggest we listen, uh, listen as if we're listening to poetry. We listen to poetry. And this one's probably uh, a little bit tricky for those who have always read the text in a sort of literal sort of thinking it's sort of descriptive of time as if someone was witnessing God at work and was taking notes and that's what we have is some sort of objective record. Um, but I think as, as we listen to this, it's, it's quite quickly you kind of sense the rhythm of the work, especially this opening act is, is sort of narrative poetry in that it's describing God's action, but in a rhythmic sort of way. I mean, the scripture itself has uh, these movements through the seven days of the week, and in each day you kind of have a general form that happens. You have God speaking, you have uh, a statement of affirming that then it was so, so this is the sort of, and God said, and then it was so. Uh, and then you have the next moment, which is generally one where God pronounces it as good, and then the naming of what was created, and, and God said, "Let there um, let the this be let there be light," and there was light. Or God saying that um, calls the expanse sky, and the, you know you get this sort of naming that happens, and then you get the, a sense of time, and there was evening, and there was morning, and that rhythm goes throughout the piece, and that rhythm and order in itself is 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 a kind of poetic movement that is reminding that there's an order, it's a message in and of itself, right? That there's an order, an ordering, there's a pace, there's a rhythm, there's, there's something that's keeping moving, uh, giving direction and organizing or ordering the world. And so if we hear it as poetry, then we, we, we open ourselves up to listen to that rhythm and allow the rhythm to give us cues to what's happening. And and to understand the text more. And so those are my suggestions. As, as we engage with this opening act of the grand story, we listen for desire, we listen as exiles, and we listen, uh, as, listen to poetry. And, and if you do this, uh, I'll just give you a taste, just an opportunity. We'll just start riffing with just a little bit of the, of the poem. And then we'll, we'll talk about what we think it says about God's desire. Because the, the scripture opens with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And it, and it keeps going, right? And the rhythm will keep going. And so please go read Genesis 1. Uh, read it several times. Uh, read it slowly. Read it um, chunk by chunk. But let it 
get in under your skin, and I think it's a very beautiful, very inspiring poem. And the question that we've been asking is, what does God want? What, is the, what, what would the exiles hear as God's primary intent and desire that comes across, comes through this story, the, the sort of pastoral care uh, that the exiles received from this account? And I will read to you, uh, because I'm no Old Testament theologian, I will read to you uh, from an Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, who has uh, a, a, a commentary on Genesis, which I have absolutely enjoyed the first little chapters of it. Uh, he says this about the main theme of the text, and I'll, I'll build this as what I think it says about what God wants. It will set us up for this grand narrative. It says, God and creation are bound together in a distinctive and delicate way. This is the presupposition of everything that follows in the Bible. It is the deepest premise from which the good news is possible. God and his creation are bound together by the powerful, gracious movement of God towards that creation. Essentially, what we have, if we step back, if we listen to this for desire, we listen as exiles, we listen to it as poetry, I think it affirms that God's overwhelming desire is that God wants to faithfully relate to creation in the words of Brueggemann, which means God wants to continue to relate, to bless, to savor, and and to collaborate with creation. And it's a commitment statement almost that God's vowing to, uh, to tend to creation that says, I will continue to relate to this created world in the way that is faithful to how I've created it. So it is God's desire to essentially take the project forward. And that is what is being proposed at the center of this, which is good news for the exiles, that God has not abandoned the project, but God desires and is committed to the created world. And we want to unpack this, and I've just mentioned it already because I'm a little bit eager to get out my points because I have to say I find these points to be very challenging and inspiring. And there's three big points that I've taken away that have left an impression on me about how God faithfully relates to creation. So if I'm saying the central desire of this character in this story, and that story is God, uh, in the opening scene, what we see is God desiring to faithfully relate to creation. And I believe that how God will relate to creation faithfully is through blessing, through savoring, and through collaborating with creation. I want to take each of these quickly in turn and then just hopefully just expand a little bit about what I think that means. Now, the first one, God blessing creation, I actually think that this one's probably the easiest for me to convince you of because it says it right in the account itself, and then God blessed them, right? When, we, when God creates uh, life on, on, on earth, it's very interesting accounts that happen, um, but generally, you know, the first few days, first three days, we get God sort of making space. Uh, and I kind of see this as, uh, this is my imagery, I'm not saying the text actually says this, but I definitely get, get the sense that God is sort of making the space for life to exist. And so the earth starts formless and void when we kind of step into the, the, the story. So God's in the process of creating, but we're at the stage uh, where there's sort of water, this chaotic symbol, um, which was used in the ancient um, times to kind of represent the chaos uh, 
in, in the world and God kind of stepping in to the chaos and sort of creating space. So we get God, God creating light because, you know, you got to be able to see what you're doing. Am I right? Uh, and once God's created light, God then creates the space, uh, the expanse between the waters, as the text says, which is sky. God calls it sky. And then God creates the seas and the land. And then once there's the space, God then enables life to grow. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but God empowers the land to then create plants and vegetation and then for the skies and the seas to have all the fish and wild creatures and birds uh, inside of it. And God blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply. But I, at the very center of, of, of this and, and days, you know, from days uh, five and six, um, we, we see this picture of the God who is for creation, is for the thriving of creation. The message that we get in Genesis is God wants to see creation thrive. God is not indifferent to the status of creation, not really caring, ah, you know, well, if, if it goes all right, that's great. If it doesn't, oh, uh, well, you know, I got plenty of other things going on and planets far, far else. We get, we get this idea that God actually deeply cares for life to thrive, life to be full. And that's part of the beauty of the movement of this narrative, that it starts formless, goes to form and to fullness. There's this direction that God wants to take life and life to the full. It echoes those words of Jesus that I have come that you may have life to the full. I think Jesus picks up on this blessing and continues to carry it out. So when we ask what God is up to in Genesis, we see the God that is working for creation to bring it life and wholeness and health and well-being that God is making the space for life to thrive. And I think that is one of these beautiful messages. You know, we doubt the goodness and character of God as exiles. It's easy to feel that sense of abandon, that God doesn't care. But at the beginning of Genesis, in this opening account of a story, we see a God who deeply wants creation to thrive. The next, is, so, so God faithfully relates to creation by blessing it. And the next point then is God faithfully relates to creation by savoring it. I, I never intended really on this point being in this talk, but it just kept uh, coming back to me when I was reading commentaries and as I was kind of just reflecting on the text. You know, as, as the rhythm happens in the text, there's often in this first account, and God saw that the light was good. And God saw that it was good. It's, it happened several times in the rhythm of the poem. And as you hear it, hear it, sometimes it's easy just to be kind of like, all right, you know, and you move on. But we kind of take me back now. It makes me stop as I read it because one of the commentators pointed out that it's not God saying that this is good, that's evil. It's not so much a, like a moral, is this good or bad? It's more the art artistic, the aesthetic that God sees it and sees the goodness of it. God admires it. God takes it in and says, that is good. It's that pause when you're walking and you get that view and, it, and it's, you know, the sunrise or that mountainscape or just when you catch a bird and you just stop and you're like, you know what, this is beautiful. And that beauty makes you stop and you just take it in, you drink it in, you're at peace in that beauty. There is that that, that completion where, where all feels right in that moment. And you get a God who stops and enjoys, who delights in creation, that creation isn't some sort of act of struggle, it's not some act of violence. Most of my work that I feel like comes out as an act of struggle, we get this picture of God uh, in Genesis 1 being the God who creates out of love, out of joy, and out of delight. 
I mean, this is a this is a radical picture, a radically alternative creation narrative than the ones told in Babylon, than the one of violence where the gods have to conquer or fight one another. You know, this is radically different than most of the ancient Near East stories because it is at its center a god who creates out of love and delight and joy. And creation is an act of wholeness and peace right at the foundation of, of the story. And I... I think, you know, as an aside, what, what challenges me is, is how often we set our faith up to be against science. We have this sort of debate about uh, whether or not this is the, the true story of how things came to be versus the scientific view. And, and I often think we then kind of pit ourselves against scientific investigation and exploration when I actually think if you take this Genesis text seriously, if you believe that at the center of the universe, at the center of it all, is a being who created with joy, one of the most appropriate responses is curiosity, is to actually get out there and admire it because it, we have right in the text God admiring and, and, and engaging in delight for, from seeing this creation for sciences that go and study and explore and take the time to understand how things work, how it's made up, and to actually understand ordering and, and the beauty, I think is the basis for, a, for a, a, a sound response to this belief that God creates from delight. I think it opens us up for curiosity, for investigation. And that's just a bit of a side, but I think it's hopeful for me as I, as I, as I go forward to, to not see my faith pitted against science, but actually empowering this investigation of, of the world and of the universe. Um, as we move towards the last one, so God faithfully relates through blessing, God faithfully relates through savoring, and the last uh, and probably the most challenging is God faithfully relating through collaborating with. And, and this one is probably one of the more, more radical to me for the sheer fact that uh, it's easy to see the king language in, in the text. There's kingly language coming throughout the whole text that, you know, God speaks and it comes into be. That's, that's the sort of uh, way of the kings, right? You know, if a king gives a, a decree, it happens. But what we see in this text is that God is creating and then giving power away or sharing power or delegating. It's this strange sort of picture we have, which I think is extremely radical. In fact, I almost missed this, but one commentator pointed it out and I, I, I find it to be helpful. You know, what we see is in the creation story and God's kind of creating through all the days. We have this moment and when God creates the land and the seas, you know, he speaks to the land and let the land produce. And God, God's actually like, it's like there's, there's like, there's this creative potential in the earth that God's in speaking to, speaking out to the land. Now let the land produce. And God's all kind of working with what, what he's made already to, to then see it come to fruition, to its potential. But he's empowering the land to produce it. And it kind of is a sign that God is working with the created world, but then it reaches its height, obviously, its climax in the story is the creation of humanity. And when God creates humanity, there's this famous passage, right, where it says, in our likeness, in a, you know, and he made male and female, in the image of God, he created them. And there's this image-bearing aspect of humanity. And the most commentators point out that the image-bearing aspect of humanity in this sense is, is in, a, in the role God gives humanity, which is to rule over. 
It is to exercise that authority over creation that God gives us this distinct role right in the account. God gives humanity this role to play. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of negatives that have been taken out of this that, you know, we've used this to explain why we can just exploit the environment. But I think that completely misses the point because what actually is happening here is God is giving away power to collaborate with humanity to exercise what we've already talked about, the blessing and the delight to bringing this creation story to, to, to the potential for creation to fullness. God is inviting us to join God in that project, the project of bringing the created world to its potential. And, and so I think right at the end of the story, we, uh, at the end of, of this account in day six, we actually get a good, good hint, a good chunk of where the story's going to. Because God continues to work with people. In fact, N.T. Wright uh, has commented uh, that, you know, when you ask yourself, how does God exercise his authority? How does God work out in the world. He says again and again in the biblical story itself, we see that God does so through human agents anointed and equipped by the Holy Spirit, that God works with people. If you're going to summarize this up with one word, it is with. God is with creation. God wants to work with people to establish that wholeness, that fullness, and that potential. So I think when we talk about what we learn about God's desire at the beginning of the story, we learn that God wants to bless creation, to bring it to its fullness, to vitality, um, so that it thrives. We see that God savors creation, that there is delight and joy at the center of the universe. And we see that God collaborates with creation, that God wants to work with humanity to take the creation process to its potential, and that there's space, that God has space for us in that. And so as I just want to wrap up and close, because I know I've probably gone on a bit long, is that in this, I think we have now, for our time, have this story where God has given us an affirmation of the created world. We don't have a picture of an otherworldly faith. We have God affirming of the created world, that our physicality, the space and time and matter is affirmed, that God isn't going to give up on this project. He's not going to come around and tell you to scrap that picture that you painted of those capsicums and say it's done. God is, God is going to keep going on the project. God is committed to creation. And I think that this is this hope for the exile, and there's hope for us that God is still at work, even though the present data that we're receiving, that we're told to interpret from the world, is that God is long gone and long neglectful. I'll leave you with this. I think in the Genesis account, we have this great uh, aspect for a great foundation for hope that this story starts with peace it starts with beauty and it's going to go there in fact right at the beginning of genesis there's this strange account where it says in god's spirit was over the waters and some have interpreted this that that says eugene you know he translated this god's broods god's spirit broods over the chaos and what that image is is of of a bird raising up that life will spring out of chaos, that God is the God that will take that darkness, that chaos, and turn it into created. 
beauty. And, and that's, that's the uh, a central theme of this, that from the chaos, God will take it to form and then take it to its fullness. And so wherever you are, as you're wrestling with this in your own state of exile, or if you wrestle it with that sense of abandonment, I think the message God has for us in Genesis is that God is committed to creation. God is blessing it. God was for creation. God delights in it. And God is working with us to take it to that fullness and place of beauty and peace. And that is where the story is going. So I hope today that you will take that and continue with us on this journey uh, as we go through the story of the Bible. Thank you.